So we're in missions month, and this is the second week. I realized that I don't, I don't, I don't like not preaching more than one week in a row. I'm just all like jittery. Anyway, um, the, the reason we have missions, we don't have any other month, okay? We don't have anything else month. And, and the reason for that is, is that missions isn't one of our ministries. It is the multiplication of the ministry of the church. It is doing what we do locally, non-locally. It is fulfilling God's mission in the whole world. And he gave us a mission when he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. And that is to go and make disciples of all nations, to preach the gospel everywhere. And because the gospel is news, not advice, it has to be heralded. It has to be told. There has to be newsers. There have to be tellers going everywhere to do it. And um, the implications of that will be humanitarian. People will do loving things towards each other. People will be changed. Cultures, communities will be transformed. Wells will be drilled, and all that, those kinds of things will happen as a result of the fact that the gospel will go out, and where people preaching the gospel go out, they will do acts of love because Christ has made them more loving. But the, the centerpiece, the, the, what we've been told to do is to go and make disciples of all nations, tell them the good news that God has made us right with himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus on only one condition, the condition of faith. That's it. Um, this morning, um, I've invited, and we, well, the missions team and I have invited a very different speaker than last Sunday. Last Sunday, Dr. Scharf came and gave a very exegetical sermon from the Old Testament about God's promises. Um, I specifically asked Bob Grauman to come and speak to us about what God is doing today. God made promises about what he would do 700 years before Jesus came, some 2,700 years ago. And those promises are all true. And we can know that analytically by properly interpreting the scriptures. But I think where some of us get stuck is, but what is God doing right now? Is God working in, at this minute in this world through his spirit to verify his gospel to save people in this generation? And so I specifically asked Bob to be heavy on stories. The reason I asked Bob to be heavy on stories is because he's got them. There's a lot of us who aren't, interest, who aren't not interesting because we don't have stories, because we can't tell a good story. We just don't have good stories. Okay? What's fun about Bob is he, he smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. He really did that. He just got home from a month in— Eurasia, and another Asian country. <laughs> Bob's been a, um, a missionary from High Point Church for 21 years. He's been on staff with InterVarsity for 32 years. His last nine years were in Kiev, Ukraine. Um, he's come back and is stationed now here in Madison um, and is in charge of all of InterVarsity's overseas long-term missions. Um, he wrote this book called Transforming Bible Study in 2003. And it's much higher on the Amazon list than mine, so. <laughs> he has an earned PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, a fantastic school, <laughs> my own. Um, and we're really glad that he's stationed here now so he can help us develop Christian education and things like that. So, um, Bob, why don't you come and share and, uh, and preach at us with all your heart, buddy. Wow, it really is exciting to be here. It really is exciting. Let me introduce my wife, Patricia. Everyone here. Yay. Okay, let's see if this thing works. Ah, okay. So, just some definitions. 
Um, I'm a staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, have been for 32 years, and um, I love Campus Crusade. And one, one of the things I like about Campus Crusade is their name. It's very clear, Campus Crusade for Christ. Everybody knows what it is. Um, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, people come up to me and say, are you a volleyball team? <laughs> yeah, I play basketball for Jesus. We never lose a game, you know. Um, no, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, serves uh, among university students all over America. This is our, uh, our vision statement. We want to see students and faculty transformed. We want to see campuses renewed. We want to see world changers developed. But what I really want to help you understand is that InterVarsity is a one-member movement of a large international student movement called the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, the IFES. That is not InterVarsity's mission arm overseas. We are one member movement. And there's 155 nations of the world that have a, student, a Christian evangelical student movement connected to the IFES. That's our family around the world. And there's only 171 nations of the world that have a university. And we are in 155 of them, only 16 to go. And we actually are in some of those 16 countries, and I cannot talk about it. But um, Jesus is working. So the pastor asked me to talk about something now. I want to tell you that Jesus is working in universities all over the world with his power, bringing students to himself. Um, the first story, which I wasn't even going to share, but after talking to the pastor this morning, um, five years ago or so, I was in a very, very Muslim country, and we had, there's a Christian movement there, so we had a, um, a conference kind of off in the woods, and I was preaching the gospel, and there were some students sitting in the back, kind of just standing along, along the wall, you know, not really interested. And after my talk, the leaders came to me and said, you, you gotta be careful, those were Muslim students. Okay, five years later, a while ago, I was at a student leadership training camp in Kiev. Three students came running up to me and they said, remember us? We were the three students um, standing in the back five years ago when you were preaching. We've come to Jesus. And we're leaders in the fellowship of Christian students in this very Muslim country. And I said, how did you come to Jesus? And they said, well, it wasn't your great preaching. <laughs> the, the two uh, young women said that uh, after the, at that conference, they made some friends. And the friends got them into Bible study. And they spent a year investigating Jesus. Finally, they decided to give their lives to him even though their father is now obligated to kill them. That's happening now, not 200 years ago, now. And the guy said, uh, Jesus came to him in a dream. Jesus said, accept me. So the guy's like, okay, and came to Jesus. And because Jesus is working, especially in Muslim young men, through dreams all over the world, 
or he's working through, you know, evangelistic Bible studies, relationships, friendships, preaching of the word. Jesus is working all over the world, bringing people to himself. I've seen it. I know it. I just saw it a week ago. I was at a conference in Singapore um, where we had some representatives from the countries you're reading about in the newspapers every morning in the Middle East. There are Christian students in those countries sharing their witness for Christ in the midst of that chaos that we're reading about in our newspapers. When you read those articles in the morning about the Middle Eastern countries and the, our local paper lists, you know, it has a map and with the numbers and, and so on, it lists them. Pray for those students. There are Christian students in those countries sharing their witness for Christ in the marches and, and getting shot at and all that stuff. Jesus is working all over the world now to bring students, to bring young people, to bring people to himself. So last year, um, I was at this time, I was at a conference in a country on the Arabian Peninsula, and that's all I can say about it. Um, and um, four amazing things happened. The first is at this conference were 100 students, Christian students, most of them had recently come to Jesus, converts from other religions, and it was a fantastic, those students were so fired up for Christ. It was just amazing, amazing, in a place you'd never believe, on the Arabian Peninsula, the center of the other religion. Um, hundred students fired up for Christ. That was the first amazing thing. Second amazing thing is this was in a church building. I was like, what? What's a church building doing here on the Arabian Peninsula? But there was one, and a beautiful new building, legal. So I was like, wow, praise God. Then I was sitting there at that conference, and I looked on the wall, and on the wall was a plaque. And in the plaque was a newspaper article from 1975, and the headline was, the father of missions in this country. I looked at the picture. It was Carl Sherbeck and his family. Okay. And I said, yeah. And I said, oh my gosh, I sit behind him in church every Sunday morning. He's a world changer. He does extraordinary things for Jesus. Now, Carl's a great guy, but in another sense, he's one of us. He just sits here like the rest of us. He's just one of us. He changed the world because God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's my theme. And the fourth thing was this conference was led by one of the missionaries whose picture is in the back there that our church supports. Can't tell you the name. You go figure it out from the pictures in the back. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things for God. So um, I cannot be an InterVarsity staff and not do a little exposition of Scripture. Uh, it's, it's just in my blood. I can't not do it. So here's our passage. It's the famous passage of uh, uh, Jesus calling the disciples 
After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has drawn near, has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother Andrew, casting the net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. That's the famous, I will make you fishers of men. Um, at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat, preparing the nets. Without delay, he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. A very, very powerful passage about Jesus calling the first disciples, calling them to be fishers of men, calling them to follow him because up until that point, up to verse 13, he had established that he's the king. And now he's proclaiming his kingdom and they followed him. And if you take the manuscript Bible study course here at the church in Sunday school with Mark Finley and Mark Cooper. And by the way, there's some confusion about that. That doesn't mean we study the Greek manuscripts. You don't need to know Greek or Eutychritic to go to that class. A manuscript is just the passage printed out like that. But they will help you. Mark and Mark will help you dig into Mark and teach you to observe through finding repetitions, contrast, and so on. So as I was studying this passage, I noticed in red the similar words, the fish language. There's a lot of language in this passage about fishing. And I think that that is leading to this phrase, because they were fishermen, okay? The scholars say, that eight out of the first of uh, the 12 disciples were fishermen. Ordinary guys. Ordinary middle class workers. Laborers. Not the kings, not the princes, not even the teachers of the law, not the professional religious people. Ordinary guys. And boy, when you read the, the Gospels, especially Mark, did they make mistakes. <laughs> I think Mark uses them sometimes as comic relief. You know, they didn't understand everything and they made mistakes and they didn't understand, but they followed Jesus and they changed the world. Ordinary people. Jesus called them, he trained them, he used them to change the world. So, some stories. Um, for some examples, the first from church history way back in 1806, there were five students <clears throat> at Williams College in a little a private college, is still there, in Massachusetts. In fact, um, for what it's worth, George Steinbrenner graduated from there. Uh, anyway, um, so 1805, that was long before George went there. Um, these five students used to pray, they would pray every week, for missions. So one morning, as they were praying, it started to rain. So they ran underneath a haystack. And as they were under this haystack, they kept praying. And as they were praying for world missions, they felt that God had called each one of them to be missionaries. So they made a pact, you know, an agreement. Okay, we're going to be missionaries. 
So they went back to their churches and they said, I want to be a missionary, send me. Well, this is 1805. And the churches said, what's a missionary? There was no such thing at the time. So these five students formed their own board to send them, the Board of Foreign North American Foreign Missions. And that produced the 19th century missions movement in America. So at Williams College today, there's a monument to the Haystack Prayer Meeting, the only monument of any university to a prayer meeting. And on that monument is a plaque on this site in the shelter of a haystack during a summer storm in 1806, five William College students dedicated their lives to the service of the church around the world. Out of their decision grew the American Foreign Mission Movement. The American Foreign Mission Movement. Every one of us who've been a missionary, who've gone to the mission field, owe our, part of our calling to those five students. No one knows their name. No one knows their names. They changed the world. And what they actually formed was called the American Board of Commissions for Foreign Missions, which in itself sent 5,000 missionaries into the world. Five students, ordinary people that we don't even know their names, changed the world. Jesus uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Um, my experience, uh, I was in Eastern Europe doing the, you know, Bible thing um, and going into the communist countries and all that in the late 80s. And uh, so I went to all the communist countries. And in 1989, there was still a country called East Germany. That's the red part of Germany. It was a separate country. Most of you will remember that. The DDR, the Deutsches Demokratisches Republic. It was communist connected to the Soviet Union, you know, by treaties and stuff. And it was a tough communist country. Um, here's their 40th anniversary. And if you could see that picture, none of those people look very happy. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the communist way. They look, all look sad. Um, and it was especially noted for the Berlin Wall that they built to keep people in. Well, for 40 years, um, not for 40 years, but for 40 years that country existed, and the Berlin Wall, very strong, people would be shot if they tried to get over it or under it or around it. Well, that fall of 1989, a small prayer meeting of young people started in two churches, one in East Berlin and one in Leipzig. Every Monday night, they pray. They pray for peace. They pray for freedom. And then they said, hey, after we pray, let's just march around. So they marched around the block after they prayed. Little signs that said, freedom or peace. And then people would join them. 20, 40. Next Monday, 80. Next Monday, 200. Next Monday, 500. Next Monday, Thousand, too big for the church, so they met in the town square. Pray, march, peace. Next Monday, 50,000. 
next Monday. And I used to listen, I was in Vienna at the time, listening every Tuesday morning for how many people came, because it was in the news by that time. Next Monday, 100,000. Next Monday, 250,000. And on November 9th, 1989, they prayed and they marched to the wall. And the East German authorities opened the wall. So now we had that and this, the wall opening up, and this, people coming through Checkpoint Charlie, where they used to get shot to come through there. Now they were driving their little East German cars through there. That wall opened up. Communism fell in Europe because people prayed. And they marched and they prayed. Okay, remember Ronald Reagan's famous thing, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall? Gorbachev didn't tear down that wall, God did. Because of some obscure people who will never know their names, who prayed every Monday night and had the courage to walk around the block with little signs that said freedom in Christ. So, um, God uses ordinary people. Not just Europe and America. Here's the country of Rwanda. And I'm sure you know the famous story and the, the way that the Belgians drew the boundaries around that country. It basically consisted of two tribes, the Tutsis and the Hutus, who absolutely, positively hated each other. They wouldn't talk to each other. They just despised each other. So at the university in Rwanda, um, even in the cafeteria, there were two sides to the cafeteria, the Hutu students and the Tutsi students. Except for the IFES students, the Christian student group, they put a table in the middle. They invited the Christian Hutus and the Christian Tutsi students to sit with them. And so every day in the cafeteria, the two groups sat together to show their reconciliation in Christ. In 1994 came the genocide. And the one, I forget which tribe, one tribe went at the other one with the machetes, genocided, killed about a million people. So the genocide people came to the university with their machetes. First question they asked, where are the Christian students? Because we have to kill them first because they're a witness to the fact that there can be reconciliation, and we don't want that. We can't have a genocide if there's people working on reconciliation. So they killed all the Christian students, chopped them up, and they killed our, the staff, the IFES staff, except for one guy who escaped to tell us the story. Those students died because they loved each other, because they loved Jesus more than even their own tribe or nation. And the one guy who escaped is now the United Nations Chair of the Rwandan Justice and Reconciliation Commission. He spends his life reconciling the country, trying to bring the peace of Jesus to that country, and trying to love the people that chopped his family 
to death. That's now. We don't know his name. He's just a regular guy, a staff, like Jim Tamner or me or whoever, Dan Pinka, just a staff with an with a international Christian organization. You never know his name. He's changing the world for Christ, even now. And then back when I was in this uh, Arabian Peninsula, I met a young couple, about 25 years old, and they're from the blue country up there that I cannot say the name of, but you'll recognize it when you see it. Um, very tight country, obviously. And so I said, wow, there aren't many Christians from that country. How did you two come to Jesus? And they said, well, we have no Christian background. We were sitting in our home, and we felt we heard the voice of God say to us, seek Jesus. So we did. So the, we said, they said, we looked all around our country. We found one, a church, one church. Went to the pastor, told him our story, said, God kind of told us to seek Jesus. Can you help us? The pastor shared the gospel. They came to Jesus. They went back to their home, and they started to tell their friends about Jesus. Pretty soon they had 100 converts meeting in their living room. And they said, what do we do now? So they read Acts, and they said, okay, baptism. So they bought a children's pool, put it in their living room, and baptized everybody. This got so big that the government found out about it, so the government came and arrested them, put them in jail for three months, then kicked them out. And they went across the Persian Gulf there, there and um, wound up in the city that I was in. And they, went, they found a church there, went to the pastor, and they said, we're interested in students. And the pastor said, oh, good, there's IFES staff right over there. So then they went through two years of training with the missionary on the thing in the back, and now they are staff with IFES in this country. And there's a university sponsored by their home country in that city, and they are staff at that university leading Muslim students to Jesus all the time. I met them. I met the students that they're working with. This is real. You see these countries and you figure, no way, no way. Well, I'm here to say you, way, it's happening. Jesus is working to bring people to himself all over the world, and he's using ordinary people, not famous people, not great Christian leaders, 25-year-olds who spent some three, three months in jail, a staff who escaped from a genocide, some students at Williams College, um, some people praying in a church in East Germany, ordinary people. He's using them to change the world. Because what they all have in common, courage. The courage to follow Jesus. And I th I've been through a lot of thinking about courage. And sometimes we think, oh, courage, I have to screw up my courage, you know? Like getting up here, for instance. <laughs> you know? Or going to the dentist. 
for me. Um, screw up my courage. Well, actually, when you look in the Bible, courage is basically following Jesus. And I'm convinced you don't even know you have courage when you have it. You're just simply following Jesus. That's what those disciples did. And it's hard. I mean, they left their father in a very family-oriented culture. They left their job. They left their boat. But I don't think that if you ask them, I don't think they would say, oh, yeah, that took a lot of courage. They would just say, we realize Jesus is the king. We want to be in his kingdom. He told us to follow him. So we did. That's courage. It's not something you screw up or fire up or psych up. It's simply following Jesus. Here's my own story on that. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, it's just following Jesus. Okay, country of Albania. Now, in the 80s, 70s, 60s, anybody know what Albania was known for? Some of you older folks? Pardon? Amen. Thank you, sir. Yes. The world's most atheist country. And, uh, you know, a lot of countries were atheists. All the communist countries, Russia and Ukraine and so on. But most of those other countries had signed some kind of declaration of human rights. So they had to have a few churches. They had to allow a few churches. Albania didn't. They didn't sign anything. And so they did not allow any faith. No churches, no mosques, no synagogues, no nothing. You were not allowed to believe in God. And they were very tight about it. There's only six known Christians in the whole country, and they were trying to get out. Some of them dove into the Adriatic Sea there and tried to swim across to Italy to escape. It was really tight, okay? So picture that. So in June of 1991, like all the other communist countries, some students marched around and the government fell. The communist government ended, June of 91. Well, in August of 91, I happened to be in Vienna and I got a call from the university's director of missions, Dan Harrison, who was also a member of this church, by the way when he was here. And Dan also is a world changer, was a world changer. Um, He developed this thing he called Global Projects, which was to send a group of 12 or 15 American Christian students to have a program at a university in a closed country um, where that university would choose 12 of their students studying English And our students would go over there and we'd have a program for a summer, live in the dorms together, have a cultural exchange. And in that process, share the gospel. So I get this call from Dan Harrison. He says, Bob, I want you to go into Albania and try to start a global project. Okay, sure, fine. Prayed about it, yep, okay. So I called all my missionary friends and they said, well, you can't get in to Albania. I mean, they only had the revolution two months ago. They're still not letting Americans in unless you're with a tour group. But I looked in the phone book in Vienna and found, guess what? The Albanian embassy. 
So I went to the Albanian embassy, which is a little house thing, and uh, knocked on the gate. This guy sticks his head out the window and says, what do you want? Right, in German. I'm like, I want a visa. So he came down, opened the gate, and I said, I'm an American. I'm not with a group, just by myself. But I'd really like to see your country. It's like, okay, boom. Gives me a visa. Right there. And he says, and by the way, there's only one travel agency in all of Europe where you can buy a ticket on a flight to Albania. It's right across the street. Okay, so I went across the street, and they said, yeah, we have a flight to Albania. It only goes once a week, and it goes tonight. Okay, bought a ticket. And called my wife, told her to pray. <laughs> and this plane leaves at 10 o'clock, and I don't know why it left at 10 o'clock at night and arrived in Albania, Tirana, the capital, at midnight. So at 10 o'clock at night, I'm on this plane, going to Albania. Plane lands, I get off the plane, go through the passport thing, and I'm standing there uh, outside the, the um, airport, and I realize three things. Number one, this airport is 20 miles from the city. Number two, Albania is so communist, they don't allow cars. There's no cars here. Number three, I don't know a soul in this country. I'm like, it's one o'clock in the morning, in the middle of Albania, and I'm wondering, what do I do now? And I hear my name, Mr. Grauman. Like, what? I look, there's a student, an Albanian student. He looked exactly like uh, our, our guy who gave the Gavin, right? Looked like Gavin. I'm like, and he said, uh, he said, I'm your guide. Perfect English. I'm your guide. I said, what? He said, well, um, he said, when it was communist, we hardly had any visitors from the West. But when we did, each one of you got a guide to make sure you didn't do anything bad. You know? And he said, it's not communist anymore, but it's still my summer job. So... And they sent me, from the Albanian embassy in Vienna, they sent me your name. So I'm your guide. And I have a car. Awesome. <laughs> Jump in the car, right? And we're driving toward the city, and he says, by the way, I made a reservation for you in the only hotel in the city. Okay. So then he says to me, so what are you doing here? And I said, well, actually, um, I'd like to find the university, if there is one. I don't even know if there is one. And the English department, if there is one, and propose a program of kind of a cultural exchange. He's like, oh, well, he said, there is a university. And he said, uh, I just happened to major in English last week. <laughs> and it just so happens that tomorrow morning, there's a meeting of the English faculty. I'll take you. Because he said, I know all of them. I just graduated. All right. So we still go to the hotel, next morning he picks me up, and we're walking to the university, which is right next door to the hotel, and he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. <laughs> what? So, this is only six of you in the whole country, how could this? So now he said, he said, two weeks ago, another visitor like you came and uh, shared the gospel with me, and I came to Jesus. All right, okay. So we're walking toward the university. And he says, now, I'm going to take you to the meeting of the English faculty. He says, but be careful, because the lady who's the chair of the department used to be the chair of the Communist Party 
in the university. And she's really mad that communism has ended, right? So I go to this meeting and I presented, you know, I'm Bob Grauman from Madison, Wisconsin, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to pr propose this program where we, we can, we will find, we'll get um, 15 or so students from America and we'll come in the summer and you pick your 15 best students of English in your university and we'll live in the dorms and have a cultural exchange program together. And they're like, great, where do we sign? And I said, well, wait a minute, I, I really want to be honest about this. I represent InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I said, I don't represent the University of Wisconsin or anything. I represent InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So part of this is we're going to have Bible studies, you know, and that kind of stuff. And this lady looks at me. She says, we've been without that for 50 years here. We really need it. it where do I sign? Okay. So I walked out with a signed contract for a global project. And the next year, Patricia and I led the global project to Albania. It was hard. I remember Patricia bit into a piece of bread that had the fly in it, freaked out. Um, and it was hard, it was hard. But that kind of got things going for the student ministry in Albania. So 12 years later, in 2004, um, we were at a student conference in Europe, for all of Europe. And this group of students, we're walking by, and this group of students said, would you take our picture? Sure. So my wife takes the camera, and then that student down there on the right pulls out the Albanian flag. And we're like, are you guys the group from Albania? And they said, yeah. And we said, how's it going? And they said, oh, we've got this great ministry, 100 students at the main university, and student groups at the other two big universities and plans to get to the other universities. It's going great. And my wife burst out crying. I had to take the camera and take the picture. <laughs> what did I do? Think about that story. What great thing did I brilliantly perform? Nothing. I got on the plane. That's all. I just got on the plane and waited to see what Jesus would do. That's following Jesus. So he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So I'd like to challenge you to follow Jesus. Take a risk. That means something different for each one of you as you relate to Jesus. For some of you, following Jesus means a first-time decision to really follow him. For some of you, the risk means to go to Sunday school, to, to you know, take an hour after this and go to class to learn something about the Bible or about your Christian life. Now, this would have more powerful impact if it was the fall or winter, because going to Sunday school means you miss kickoff, right, for the Packers game at noon. But even now, it's a sacrifice of an hour. It's a risk. Go to Sunday school, or maybe for some of you, it's going to a small group where you might have to pray out loud. That's scary for some people. Others of you might be share with a friend, share Jesus with a friend or a neighbor, or invite them to church. John Georgian always testifies about how he came to this church because somebody invited him 
to the Christmas cantata. Invite a friend to church. That's a risk. That's following Jesus. Um, or lead a Bible study in your neighborhood. Or go on a short-term mission. Go to the, D- the Dominican Republic with the, with the team. And there's a, a group, tailors and rawhousers sometimes come to Kiev to help us with the, with the ministry to students there. And I remember when the Rawhauser family first came to our training institute for staff in Kiev. Um, there's a long sociological reasons for this, but most young people in their 20s and 30s in the Russian-speaking countries don't have fathers. And so the Rawhausers were just there, kind of pouring tea, helping us move tables, and with their family. And the staff, young staff, 25, 26 years old, were coming up to me saying, that's what a real father does, right? Because they were watching how Kent treated Talia and Reed, how he treated his kids. And they're like, so that's what a real father does. Yeah, we want that. I want to be that. I want to be that kind of father and mother like Lynn is. Okay, change their lives, change some lives. Just going over to Kiev and pouring tea, helping to move tables, change some lives. It's a risk to go overseas. Maybe you're called to long-term service. Talk to me. That's my new job, to recruit people. <laughs> but whatever. It may be going to Sunday school, or it may be going to the other most parts of the world. What is Jesus calling you to do? And the second thing that I have to say, along with taking a risk, please, please pray. Please pray for the world. Please pray for your missionaries. Um, when we first moved to Kiev, Patricia, uh, I, I went the first week and found a nice church. Um, it actually had a church building, which is very rare for Protestant churches in Kiev. There are no church buildings except for this one. I found this nice church. So next week, I said, Patricia, let's go. So we went and we got, went out, came out of the subway, and I said, I think it's up this street here. So we started to go up the street. I said, no. Ugh. It might be over there. So we start to walk over there. I'm like, no, I think, I think it's back here. And Patricia looks at me and says, how do you do it? She says, how do you get into Siberia and go to all these secret meetings and, and, and all these communist countries? You can't even find a church that's right up the street. I said, my secret weapon. High Point Church, because I know that you pray for me. I can look at you. I know the ones who pray for me. And I, actually, some of you pray for me that I don't know. That's why I've never been followed. 25 years of going into communist countries, never been caught. It's not because I'm so brilliant or suave. I don't have a tux or a, you know, drink in my hand like James Bond or whatever. Um, I do have a beautiful girl. Um, oh. <laughs> Blonde. Um, but anyway, I'm nothing. I'm just an ordinary guy. Why have I been protected? Because you pray. And not only you, but other people, other churches pray for us. 
That's why it works. Please pray for your missionaries. My first trip ever to Romania was in 1983. Yeah, risk, follow Jesus and pray. Um, I'd never been out of America before, and they asked me to go to Romania, which was then a really communist country, very tight, very heavy communist country, and teach a, a class for two weeks to some underground secret pastors. So, and, and this, is, this is true. They gave me the instructions. The instructions were start in Vienna, Austria, go to Budapest, change trains in Hungary, communist Hungary, then go across the border to that little town called Aradia, and then get off the train, go to a hotel. The next morning, come out the front door of the hotel at 8.01, not 8, not 8.05, 8.01. And there's a statue across the street from the hotel. Look at the statue for three minutes. Find the fourth bench from the statue and sit there. And at 8.08, a guy will come by with a red bag and wink. Follow him. That really was the instructions. Okay? I'm like, oh, man. And I'd never been out of America before. I, you know. So, but to get there, you know, I had to change trains in Budapest. And a Hungarian, I didn't know any Hungarian. I found the right train. And then the train got to the border with Romania at midnight. And again, not, not in making this up, floodlights come on. The train is surrounded by military. So I literally looked out the window of the train into the barrel of an AK-47. And um, dogs, you know, barbed wire, the whole bit. And, you know, I'm, I figured, oh, I'm going to go see these pastors. I'll bring them some nice Christian books. So I filled my suitcase with books like Becoming a Christian, How to Study the Bible, How to Follow Jesus. Every single book had the word Jesus or Bible. And so then they took my passport off the train, which is actually illegal, so I had no passport. And then the guards come on the train and they start ripping people's luggage apart and shouting at them. And I'm like, I'm toast. I haven't even got into this country yet, and I'm going to be in a Romanian jail for the rest of my life, doing Romanian prison ministry. And <laughs> so I'm sitting out, I really was terrified at my own stupidity, you know, not anything, just stupidity. But then I remembered hundreds of people were praying, hundreds. And this sense of peace that I'd never had before came over me. And so they got to the person in front of me. They're ripping his luggage apart. And the train started to lurch. So this guy comes running onto the train, hands me my passport, shakes my hand, says in English, have a nice time in Romania. And everybody jumps off the train. The train takes off. They checked everybody's luggage but mine. Why? Because I'm so brilliant? <laughs> Hardly. Because people were praying. You don't know how you can affect the world by spending an extra half hour in prayer this afternoon or tomorrow for some missionary or some Christian students in 
one of those countries you read about in the paper in the morning. So I challenge you. Jesus calls you to follow him. That means something different for each one of you. It may mean accepting him as your Lord and Savior for the first time. It may mean going to Sunday school. It may mean starting a Bible study. It may mean going to the farthest parts of the earth as a missionary. It's the same. It takes the same risk just to follow Jesus. So follow Jesus. Be people of prayer. And he'll use you to change the world. Amen.